Hello, you're listening to Craig Walker's Future Off podcast, where we bring together conversations with thought leaders from across the world to unpack what's next in the design of products, services, and experiences. I'm Jeremy Walker, co-founder and director of Craig Walker, a design and research agency with a mission to design the greatest positive impact for the greatest number of people. And for this series, Peter Farrago, a lead designer at Craig Walker, explores the future of care. In this episode, she has a conversation with Dr. Philip Reed. He's the Director of Sexual Health and Bloodborne Virus Services in the Southeastern Sydney Local Health District and Director of Kirkton Road Centre, a healthcare service that operates on a harm reduction model to provide free and anonymous care to people who traditionally experience barriers to accessing healthcare. This includes people who inject drugs, sex workers, and people experiencing homelessness. Peter spoke to Dr. Reed on International Drug Overdose Day discussing what it means to challenge healthcare paradigms, especially when providing care to groups historically excluded from healthcare access. He also talks about how empowering some groups to self-administer care can lead to better outcomes, and how self-testing can be a powerful form of this model of care. There's also a content warning for this episode, so please note that it may contain some discussion of addiction and overdose. Please listen with care. you describe your approach to care compared to other healthcare models? Are there differences? So there's lots of services that do provide very good care to many of the clients that we see. However, I think that one of the differences um, is that from the outset, the service is premised on the, the application of a harm reduction principle to the populations that we see. So without judgment of the medical implications or the legal implications of what people are doing, we very strongly try to have a focus on how can we support you to stay as safe and as healthy as possible, regardless of taking a view on what it is that you're doing that could cause you harm. So there's very much a focus on respecting people's choices, even if they're not choices that I personally would make or that mainstream society would think people ought to make, but very much respecting that and, and making it a place of safety where people can talk about those things openly uh, without fear of reprisal or judgment or ultimately restricted access to the healthcare system. And I think that many people have experienced that in the past by revealing personal, private and sensitive information about themselves have felt some level of discrimination or retribution related to that. So we try to make it a safe and comfortable and non-judgmental space as possible. Of course, when assessing what the range of things we might be able to support that person with might be, we very much try to present them as a suite of things that that person might consider relevant to them right now, and we might not be trying to push something super hard, like we see many people with drug use disorders, of course, and not one might think the first thing you want to jump into is, well, we've absolutely got to offer this person treatment, they need to be on treatment. It's much more about trying to assess their readiness, letting them know that we're there to support them while something's happening, and when they're ready for treatment, if they want treatment, they've been informed about it, they know how to access it, and we're ready to provide it to them at that time. So I think the range of things that we offer here is important as well. And we cover the whole range of interventions from prevention, primary prevention, secondary prevention, treatment, follow-up, and try to look at 
where that person's positioned, both individually within their community of friends and family and also within broader society and try and take those kind of three lenses as to their health and well-being, not just the single patient in front of me kind of experience. And I think the other thing that is important in delivering this kind of care is when, when somebody isn't able to complete the treatment that they might have started or able to follow through on follow-up for either their mental health or social or medical conditions is to make sure that it's very clear that there should be no sense of failure associated with that, that you can try as many times as you need to to do that thing that you want to do. Mm. It sounds like in order to run the care services that you do, you're really thinking outside the box and almost pushing against the status quo in some instances. Are there any examples you could talk to of pushing against the status quo in the field of care? I think that in some of the uh, harm reduction interventions, there's always an imperative to, I guess, question the status quo as much as push against it, but just test it and say, well, you know, why is it that we do that? What is the reason? I mean, fundamentally, we hope the service runs on evidence-based principles. And so if there is a good rationale for doing something um, from a public health perspective or a clinical evidence perspective, then, of course, we should be doing that. But often there's dogma and there's precedent around how we choose to deliver our services. And when you when you scratch the surface, quite often, it's difficult to really establish why we do it like that, other than that's how we do it. And and it suits us as a health system. So a couple of examples in recent times about um, healthcare innovations, I suppose, that have challenged the status quo. One is around drug overdose, and today is actual International Drug Overdose Day, so it's a good thing to talk about. In Australia, still several thousand people a year die of, of drug overdose, and many of those people experience that with somebody else around that could witness and could support. And we often would encourage people to call ambulances as soon as they noticed overdose, might train people in basic life support, but we never gave, for many years, never gave people the antidote to overdose that they could possess themselves. We would hope that they called an ambulance to come and we deliver that drug through you know, the established medical pathway of a trained health professional making a diagnosis of drug overdose and going forth and treating. And really over the last seven or eight years, we... We challenged that paradigm and were able to demonstrate that drug users themselves were very capable of, of, of training each other in the, dis, in, in, in the use and of this drug antidote or overdose antidote, that it was safe to do so, that there was no sense in which if we provided people with free access to the antidote medication, the Loxone, that that would influence people's decisions on how much drugs they took or whether they would do it in a more risky way than before, which had been people's rationale for not distributing this. People worried that it might you know, remove people's inhibitions in some way or make them somehow less concerned about overdosing. Or, mm. And that, that just obviously proved to absolutely not be the case. And so we needed to establish that program relatively on the down low because we didn't want to attract a program, had to get a lot of legal advice about the appropriateness of handing medication to patients that they would then use on another patient because mm. that's obviously not a common thing that you would do. But we got legal advice, community were super supportive and now 
the, the community themselves are the ones that are distributing and, and managing overdose response training uh, more than clinical services. So that's been a huge shift. And, and that has led over a decade now to the Commonwealth Government um, in the last couple of budgets allocating um, hundreds of thousands of dollars to this specific program. So now in Australia, Commonwealth Government supports free access to naloxone from any community pharmacy. You can just walk up and say, I think I might be at risk of, of coming across somebody who's overdosed. Can I have some naloxone? And they will just be able to hand it to you mm. with a very simple training package. And so that, that was a big change over a decade. And it was through looking at models overseas, testing the legal situation, ensuring we had community support, doing a pilot, demonstrating it was safe, producing the evidence, publishing papers for, for the scientific community to know that this was a reasonable thing to do, attending conferences, lobbying government. And then eventually now it's pretty much standard of care and we would deliver through our service and through New South Wales um, thousands and thousands of these um, overdose packages uh, each year. Hmm. Can we zoom out a little bit? Just to harm reduction more generally. Phil, how do you describe harm reduction? Harm reduction is a principle that can be applied to lots of things that we do in health and probably beyond. But it is most discussed in the drug use and probably also um, sex space. So as opposed to supply reduction, which would be stopping people getting hold of harmful products, um, or as opposed to demand reduction, which would be stopping people wanting um, those products through either legal frameworks or um, treatment facilities. Harm reduction approaches drug use or sex in this context from the perspective that the behaviour or the activity is going to happen. Um, and if it's going to happen without judgment, we provide an evidence-based and um, human rights-based set of interventions and aspects of knowledge sharing that allow that person to do what they want to do, respecting their autonomy, in the absolute most safe way possible. So it's sort of agnostic to a desire for somebody to stop or a request for somebody to stop. It's not done in isolation, so it often accompanies options for drug treatment and options for other types of management. But it really is that. It's a human rights-based approach that respects where people are at, recognises that change is difficult, and while people are engaged in the behaviour that might put them at risk, it behoves us as medical professionals and society generally to provide that person with all the means we possibly can to stay as safe and well as possible until such a time, potentially, as they cease to engage in that risky activity. Mm. How does Australia fare in the context of harm reduction compared to other countries? Historically, Australia has been relatively innovative around harm reduction. Certainly, in the early phase of the HIV epidemic, Australia was one of not, it was definitely not the first country, but it was one of the first countries to establish uh, widespread needle and syringe programs, um, and that happened in, in New South Wales uh, fairly early on. And that was really uh, on the back of an HIV response, which from the outset was very inclusive of affected communities. So our, our policy responses from the get-go brought in people who were in the sex work industry, drug user community organisations, LGBT organisations, etc. And, and in fact funded those organisations to advocate and manage and support community through those difficult conversations and those difficult times. And so 
there has always been a, a robust but inclusive conversation at the highest level, I think, about policy responses and medical responses where harm reduction might be a significantly important strategy. I don't think that that's to say that everything Australia's done in that space is always perfect, and, and many other countries, and certainly in, in Australia, many states and territories other than New South Wales, um, have their own responses and are strong in certain aspects. But I think that there is a willingness within Australia to understand a human rights-based approach to, to medicine. There is a willingness to speak to communities of individuals that other parts of the system might be trying to encourage to do something different with their lives, but to actually include them in the conversation and, and listen and fund it. For example, needle and syringe programs in New South Wales, we deliver about 14 million needles and syringes a year. That's it's not that expensive. It's it really only probably costs about dollar fifty equivalent per needle delivered. So that's about a, it's about a twenty million dollar program to deliver about fourteen million needles. So that's it's pretty good, and it's been robustly evaluated. And we've estimated that the cost saving to the system in terms of averted HIV diagnosis and averted hepatitis C diagnosis means that we save approximately four and a half dollars to the healthcare system for every dollar we spend on needle and syringe programs. So with that kind of evidence, even people that aren't particularly keen on the outcome of harm reduction understand the maths and you know they are happy with so so we have enjoyed bipartisan support for harm reduction to a certain extent and certainly needle and syringe programs um, since the mid 80s. We also, through a great deal of advocacy, both from doctors, politicians, community, church organisations, social welfare, social justice and uh, open society type organisations, were able to establish a, a drug consumption facility in Sydney, which opened in 2001. So that's been in operation now for over 20 years. And again, it's been thoroughly reviewed. So the evidence for its impact is very well established. However, it, that hasn't resulted in support for opening further injecting facilities elsewhere in New South Wales. So although there is a strong policy embrace for harm reduction and a flexibility and a, and a, and a broad government support for the approach, it isn't a free-for-all. There, are, there are still are limits, and um, although many people have advocated for further opportunities for drug consumption rooms, so far that hasn't resulted in any further legislation to enable that yet. Mm. Yeah, you can see that happening in Melbourne at the moment with the push to open another mm. consumption centre. You touched on a couple of things earlier around what I would label as more accessible care around administering naloxone and also drug testing kits. What opportunities do you see for more kind of instances of this accessible care model? I think everybody has had an experience of self-testing themselves for COVID at some point. And I think it's important to reflect that, that was, that's pretty unusual um, that we've ever devolved and allowed that level of self-management of, in this instance, a communicable disease. Um, we typically regulate to a very high level access and a performance of tests and train people to do them and register laboratories and and also of course in our in our pharmaceutical regulatory framework we very much restrict access to medications through you know pharmacists doctors nurses to a certain extent you can get some things of course in supermarkets now but but we really tightly control these things and many times appropriately so because you know the 
drugs used in the wrong circumstances, you know, may have poor health outcomes and not a test that's done in an unreliable way may have significant implications for that person, either if it's falsely wrong or falsely right. But I think what what it's really demonstrated to me is that people are way more interested in being able to take an active role in their health than we probably really appreciated, not just in terms of health coaching or being healthier or stopping smoking or reducing drinking or taking exercise, etc., but actually in the ins and outs of testing themselves, managing themselves for healthcare conditions. And so I would, I, I guess, I'd be interested in seeing where that leads in terms of democratization of access to these kind of tools so that people can self-test themselves for a range of conditions, you know, be they metabolic conditions, communicable disease conditions, they might be able to self-screen for mental health conditions through surveys and actually use validated tools to be able to turn up to health services having already determined to a certain extent what's wrong and then of course you know the access to the therapeutics related to that is the next step and thinking about um a few years ago when i was in london and i think i got swine flu and because they couldn't manage the system for getting all those people to the doctor to get their the flu antiviral medications you could basically self-diagnose yourself online get a special number and just turn up and pick up your own antivirals for flu without needing to see a healthcare professional, particularly um, other than the pharmacist that you just picked up the meds from. We do seem to respond in cases of emergency with being able to flex the system and flex those regulations to a certain extent. And I think that it would be nice to think that there could be a legacy from that where we've demonstrated, well, actually, you can do this. People can test. They can be trusted. It's not done wastefully. And actually, it has a reasonable public health benefit. And I think in, in the space that I'm in, what might that look like? Self-testing kits are available in pharmacies now for HIV from a finger prick, so you can go and do that. Um, They're still very tightly regulated diagnostic tests, and there are good reasons for that. But um, much broader access to self-testing for things like HIV, hepatitis, syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea... You know, people should be able to access those things as and when they need them, rather than having to be filtered through to see one of my team to be offered those tests. So, Phil... What trends have you seen emerge in your work and and what do you hope to see more of in the future? Certainly our use of the data sources around us that may be deliberate or incidental has been, I think, an evolving space. Uh, An example of that, during our effort to vaccinate um, the Australian population for COVID, we were able to map vaccine uptake in social housing tower blocks to lists of residents within those tower blocks held by other parts of government Mm. and able to create hotspots for um, geographical areas within our health district where there was significant under-vaccination. And I think that it's really given us a much more proactive understanding of the utility of much of the data that we collect. So previously, not a lot of thought, I think, had been put into necessarily what you could do with a registry. It was there to note to be notified to, rather than to inform where we delivered our care. And, and so connecting, joining the dots between our different data sources, triangulating data. Another example um, is around hepatitis C notifications. And previously, we if you diagnose somebody with hepatitis C, they'd, they'd be on a notification list and they'd just sit there. 
with this diagnosis, you know. And then suddenly we develop treatments for hepatitis C um, that are much more effective and, and broadly uh, able to be rolled out. And then trying to get information back out of that notification system to say, well, hey, you know, there's 30,000 people here. We've got a list of who've been diagnosed at some point in the last 20 years. How do we go about now we've actually got something we can do about that treatment? How do we go about reaching out to them to make sure that they are able to then access treatment they become aware of it and so forth and so i think there's just much more understanding of how we can connect and use data that isn't directly medical records data it's it's the data about where people are accessing services around us their habits their trends what they're searching on the internet what they're buying in the supermarkets these kind of things can actually allow us to predict and inform to a certain extent where we need to be deploying our resources um, in the future so i see i see a big role um for that. So this is such an interesting space. What product services or experiences do you think need to be designed in order to help join those dots between all these kind of disparate data sources? So an interesting example of where the dots can be connected um, actually relates to some of the work we've done um, on New South Wales' HIV strategies. So there's some great successes in reduction of HIV uh, transmission within gay-identified men within the inner city of Sydney, and there's been a huge uptake of prevention measures, and our diagnostic rates in that population are about 20% of what they were five years ago. However, there are a number of populations for whom the HIV prevention message hasn't got through, and testing, or diagnosis at least, has not significantly reduced. And one of those is in men who might have sex with other men but don't uh, identify as part of the gay or bisexual community, and they often are missed by our messages. And so something that was used, mobile phone notification data on where people were accessing um, websites or, or Facebook or so forth, and if you went to an area in New South Wales where it was known that it was a popular place for men on the download to meet and maybe hook up. If you were in that particular square couple of hundred metres for more than a little while, you'd get advertisements pushed to your phone about whether or not you needed an HIV test and whether or not you might need an MPOX vaccine or you might want to connect with an organisation to talk about you know, how you look after your sexual health and get tested if you are not part of the gay community. So we were using data from apps, understanding from community where cruising hotspots were located, and then using people's profile on, say, Facebook that said how old and their gender and, and so forth. We were able to target ads to come up to those people to promote those health promotion messages. Phil, if we were to look at the not-so-distant future, say 10 years, can you paint a picture of your hopes for the care industry? I'm somewhat biased by the space that I work in, but my, my hope would be that no matter your background or your risk factors or your life choices, be they legal or illegal or frowned upon or not frowned upon, that there were no significant markers of, of health inequity within marginalised populations in Australia. So I'm thinking, you know, Aboriginal people, people that use drugs, sex workers, migrant populations people with mental health illnesses, homeless people. 
I think that we've demonstrated in small ways over the last decade that actually we can fix some of these problems if we think creatively and we are a little bit brave about our solutions. I'm thinking about housing homeless people during COVID. Suddenly we were able to do that. It seemed intractable and suddenly we did it. Thinking about self-testing for communicable diseases, we thought the regulations wouldn't permit it, but suddenly they do. And I think that I would like to build on that and, and, and look at those intractable problems of marginalized groups and people where there is always a gap and just try to challenge and rethink, could we be doing something differently? What can we learn from? And start to test the ideas that feed into the way we deliver our healthcare and the dogma around that. And hopefully over the next 10 years, some of those gaps will be able to reduce and, 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 and all people in Australia would be able to experience the same equal level of health and well-being. The, the work that you and your team are doing is really inspiring and it's just great to talk to you about it. So thank you so much for your time today, Phil. Thank you very much. Well, that brings us to the end of this conversation. It's been a fascinating insight into a care approach that respects and meets people where they are in their lives and how this approach can lead to more equitable health outcomes for people who sit outside the traditional care model. We hope we've left you with something to think about in the context of the products, services or experiences you're designing. A big thank you to our guest, Dr. Philip Reed, for joining Peter Farrago in conversation with production and editing by Tom Hogan. The Future Of podcast was brought to you by Craig Walker, a global design and research agency that works with the world's leading organizations. Find out more about the work we do at craigwalker.com.au journal. Thank you.